In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by the AJC's Washington correspondent, Tamar Halloran. Tamar, how's it going? Hello, I can actually look at you in the face. Yeah, in this trying podcast. not to like, distract you too much. Um, <laughs> so, how was your Peachtree Road race? It was pretty good. I was in one of the last heats, Heat X. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't too bad. I was really nervous about the heat. heat but actually, is an understatement. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't too bad. How about yours? It was good. I was a little before you. I was F. My wife was something like W, but she traded up to get C. So she had the, she had a great time. Um, and I was F-ish. I think it was F. And, yeah, I had a, I had a good run. But um, – Missed you at the uh, AJC tent afterwards. I stayed for about 10 minutes and then, and then bolted. <laughs> it was so gross out. I took the MARTA train home with everyone else. All the stinky, yeah, stinky runners. It was uh, a lot of armpits in my eyes. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, we're here today to talk about Georgia politics. It was a kind of a <laughs> that slower. Was a good, that was a good segue, like Greg. Yeah, I'm, I'm working <laughs> on it. It was, a, uh, it was a slower week in Georgia politics. Um, thank goodness. Yeah, thank, we needed one. Um, it really, I was thinking about that. It, it really has never slowed down. Um, it feels like we're still back in the 2018 campaign a lot of these weeks, and we're gearing up for 2020, of course. But it was still a significant week because it was the deadline for second quarter fundraising. And while not many of the numbers have come in, we do know that this is a big test for a lot of these candidates. Exactly. There are so many candidates in the 6th and 7th districts races, all trying to get a foothold over one another to inspire a lot of donors in Georgia and elsewhere to, to give big to their campaigns, scare people off. So, um, you know, this early second quarter fundraising deadline is, is kind of a big deal. Yeah, money isn't everything, but it, but it, it says a lot. It says a lot to the other donors out there, to the voters. It says a lot to the to the operatives in Washington. To the press like us, the you press. know, to figure out who's who's gaining momentum and who we should be paying attention to. And people are starting to pick sides in these races and they wanna they wanna figure out um, which candidate which horse to back this early. Uh, and for those people, if they see a strong or at least a solid fundraising number, uh, that's important. And the first numbers we saw that came out were Lynn Homerick's. Exactly. And she was a political newbie when uh, when she announced a couple months ago, former Home Depot she executive. Running for, 7th running for the 7th District Republican nomination. Um, political novice, um, Home Depot executive. She's married to uh, Arthur uh, Blanks? One, uh, of uh, one of Arthur Blanks' executives. Exactly. And, and you know, what's interesting about her, first of all, she, she you know, she's new to politics, doesn't 
doesn't have a record like um, Renee Unterman, one of her main rivals in this race. So easier for her to run and kind of criticize what, you know, Republicans have been up to. And also she can partially self-fund her race, which is important early on as she tries to establish some sort of momentum. And we saw that because we saw she raised about $250,000 and loaned her campaign about $250,000, which is no small small change for this early in the race. Exactly. And, you know, as of right now, we're, we're filming this on, on Friday. We're still waiting to um, to see how Unterman and some of the other Republicans will do. But it's important for them to show that they can keep up or do better. Yeah. And the interesting thing will be it's, it's hard to contrast and compare these candidates with, like, let's say, Unterman, because she got in the race so late. She, she only got in a few weeks ago, so she didn't have that much time to raise money. Um, other candidates got in earlier, so it would be really crucial to see how they did. Um, and then n- next door in the 6th District, too, um, the main Republicans in those races, Brandon Beach and Karen Handel, have both, in for, both been in for, I think, about a, well, at least a full quarter. Um, so we'll be seeing their full co- fundraising numbers as well. Exactly. And in that race, we have an incumbent, Democrat Lucy McBath, who posted some pretty you know, some pretty strong numbers in the first quarter, almost $500,000 that she raised. So clearly showing that she's taking this seriously, you know, in an odd numbered year so early, that's pretty, you know, that's kind of rare in Georgia where there haven't been competitive races in a really long time in the House. And it'll be interesting to see if she can keep up with that. Yeah, we got our expectations kind of blown away in 2017 by the Ossoff handle race, which was a $60 million overall race with Ossoff raising about $30 million of that but usually we, we these are more tepid affairs with you know five six seven eight million dollars, which is still a lot of money for some of the, these these huge races, uh, but nowhere close to the Ossoff levels. So the fact that we're already seeing we're probably going to have come out of the sixth and seventh district for second quarter fundraising with multi million dollars. Um, for, for these races altogether is a significant deal. No kidding. And especially the 7th District, which for so long was not really competitive, was really kind of a sleepy race. You had Rob Woodall, who's been representing the area since 2011. And, you know, he, he's not a big fundraiser. He, he talks about how that's not really his cup of tea. You know, he'd usually be raising somewhere around $100,000 every quarter. That's pretty low, but he didn't really need to. And so already, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to see after these Q2 numbers, if we've already surpassed what was raised last year, it's entirely possible. And it'll be interesting to see also what Bordeaux does on the Democratic side. Carolyn Bordeaux, she came within about 500 votes of Rob Woodall last year, kind of stunning everybody. Um, and, and she, in the first quarter, also sought to show that, that she was kind of the dominant Democrat and raised, I think, close to $380,000, which her campaign said was the most out of any congressional challenger around the country. So can she top it? And we haven't even started talking about the the biggest race of the year, which is the Senate race. And as of this taping, we still don't have the, the numbers for all the candidates, but we will. Uh, by the time this, this airs, we probably will, at least some of them. Uh, and we're really looking at Teresa Tomlinson. She's the only announced major Democratic uh, candidate so far. That's likely to soon change, but she's the only one so far. And she's had she's had the, the better part of a, a quarter to, to raise money. Um, We'll see if she can pass the one million dollar mark, the two million. Who who knows? Exactly, and you know, David Perdue, the Republican incumbent, has such a great network. I mean, it's it's hard to overstate it. He is the president in his corner. He has the former governor, Sonny Perdue, his first cousin, and the current agriculture chief. He has the governor, Brian Kemp, on his side. So. 
it's not going to be a problem for him to raise money as a sitting incumbent. Not only that, he can self-fund if he wants to. He probably won't need to this time. But but for Tomlinson, it's going to be important as a first-time candidate. She wants to establish herself as the Democratic favorite going into this race. So not only does she have to prove, you know, get out all the other Democrats. It's not even worth it. But she also has to show that she can compete with Purdue. And, and she hasn't really, you know, she she's, was Columbus mayor for eight years, you know, kind of a regional voice. But, you know, she's introducing herself to the state. And she really needs to ramp up, you know, leading into next year. And it'll be interesting to see how that affects the other potential candidates. We've, we've talked about them a lot on, on this podcast, but one of them is Sarah Riggs Amico, the runner-up for lieutenant governor la- last year. Um, she's very likely to run. And if there is a tepid fundraising performance from Tomlinson, the Amico would just say, hey, you know, the, the field is, is completely unsettled. There's room for me. And, of course, another name we mentioned earlier in this recording is John Ossoff. He's a proven fundraiser. He still hasn't ruled out a 2020 Senate bid. Um, so he will be closely watching these numbers as well. Exactly. And, you know, there's not only that, but then we have the presidential race, you know, playing out over all of this. You know, we, we just had the first two Democratic debates in, in Miami. And I think a lot of Democrats in Georgia are kind of waiting to see if that settles at all. If there's a favorite that emerges who's, you know, a Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, somebody, you know, very progressive playing to the base, it might be harder for Democrats who want to run for Senate and kind of appeal to a broad swath of voters. But if it's somebody like Kamala Harris or Joe Biden, somebody who can really appeal to African-American voters, I think a lot of statewide Democrats in Georgia will hope that they can piggyback off that. Yeah. And and if there is if there is very tepid numbers for Tomlinson, we could also see um, other candidates who we, we didn't mention, those three that we, we just talked about, uh, maybe think about it, right? They, they might see that there's an opening. They might see that there's there's even more room to navigate here. So that's why these numbers are so important. And that's honestly why a lot of these candidates haven't been seen that much over the last few months. We're not in full-time campaigning mode yet where there's events every day and there's trips and there's rallies and there's there's town hall meetings. We're, we're very much in the quiet phone call uh, phase of the race where, where candidates are holed up in rooms just like we're holed up in right now and making one call after another after another to people they went to high school with, people they went to college with, donors they got from other candidates, donors they got from their previous campaigns, all that, um, where they're just making these and – it's, and it's described alternately as miserable, as, as soul-sucking. And some, some candidates actually like it, but it's hard to maintain enthusiasm for this when you're sitting there for hours each day making these same phone calls over and over again, begging people for $250 or, or $2,500. Yeah, you know, in, in some ways, we're, we're sitting here, we just passed the halfway mark of, of 2019. In some respects, it's it's super early. You know, your your average voter who's, who's not like a political insider, you know, they're not going to tune in until a few weeks before the race, potentially, you know, the, the congressional primary in May. Um, you know, those people are not going to get engaged until well into 2020. But on the other hand, especially as we're talking about the Senate, race, you know, and, and you're a newcomer, you, you don't have a last name like Purdue with instant name recognition, you know, it, it's quite late, actually, you're, you're trying to build a statewide brand in, you know, six, eight months. Yeah. And you mentioned the Purdue Network's power and fundraising ability and all the ties they have to the president, to the vice president, to the governor, to, to you name it, to a lot, a lot of high ranking Republican officials in, in Georgia and all over the nation. Um, they also have another ally coming in, which is a super PAC, 
um, that is going to be spending, who knows, by the end of this this race, millions of dollars on behalf of David Perdue without directly coordinating with his campaign. And, and you met with him the other day. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and it, it's going to be interesting to see. Again, they're going to be kind of closely watching what's going on on the national level and how you know, the numbers are stacking up for people like Tomlinson and Amico. If decisions are made in Washington, wow, you know, this Georgia race is looking super competitive. We're going to need all hands on deck for this. You're going to see them, you know, being extra aggressive in terms of spending and attacking, you know, all the Democratic candidates. But perhaps if it's not looking like there's a strong, you know, strong Democrat, either in Georgia or at the national level, maybe they won't need to do as much. But as you said, even though it's, feels like the campaign never ended. It's still early yet. We're halfway through the year. The next six months are going to be really telling to see how this these races shape up because, as we've mentioned many times before, we're getting more presidential visits than we have in decades. We're, we already have very competitive 6th and 7th district races, and the Senate contest is, going to, is about to get some heat under it. Yeah, it's surprising. You know, we've talked about this before, how quiet it really has been on the Senate front over the last few months. So, you know, whereas the 6th and 7th, there's just been so many candidates and, and so many people to write, a, write about, but it's going to ramp up really quickly. Yeah. Um, Amico um, sent word through a close ally of hers that she is strongly considering and very likely to run. Um, so it's no surprise when we hear in the next couple of days, weeks, if she runs, that it'll be no surprise. And um, Ossoff has given himself a little bit more time. I mean, everything we've heard from, from his side of the action is there, he's in no rush to make up his mind, but he has not ruled it out. And tomorrow, separately from the, um, from the campaign side of things, you've been working on a very important uh, political piece and policy piece, which is the hurricane relief. Um, we, we wrote a, a, a stream of stories a few weeks ago about how the deal was finally struck to provide relief for Hurricane Michael victims all over Georgia and the southeast. Um, but what you found is there is no easy answer to when they will be getting that money or even how much they will be getting. Exactly. And, you know, the answer, you know, the reason why there's such a delay, Washington bureaucracy at, at work. <laughs> I mean, so so the president signed the this deal struck by Congress, and, and that officially released the money at the beginning of June. The issue now is that all that money now starts flowing through federal agencies, and there's almost two dozen of them that have a hand in all of this. And, and every single one of them has to start writing and drafting regulations that will determine who gets the money. They have guidance from Congress that, that's going to help with that, but it still takes so much time for them to get public input for those regulations, to get the White House Budget Office to buy in, um, and then for it to, you know, for the states to develop implementation plans. So I, I was writing basically that it could take months, even potentially the better part of a year. The one-year anniversary of Hurricane Michael hitting Georgia is on October 10th. It is entirely possible possible that some farmers or some communities, you know, might have to wait until that anniversary to get any sort of money. And you reached out to more than a dozen federal agencies, lawmakers, congressional groups, associations, and you found pretty much the same answer, which was a big shrug <laughs> as to how this money will be dispensed and what and, and what, what policies and procedures they'll use. Exactly. All the money has con- kind of gone into the black box. It is these federal agencies. And, you know, this is a fairly normal process. This is the sort of thing that happens after every major disaster relief package gets passed. Um, and I think, you know, the, the issue is that for a lot of these farmers in southwest Georgia, the damage happened so long ago. A lot of these tough choices they had to make about financing and replanting 
you know, for the new year, those had to happen months ago. The losses have already happened. Um, you know, the money is, of course, welcome. But I think, um, you know, maybe these farmers can go buy a tractor or some of the equipment that they deferred on. But in terms of whether they want to plant for 2019, those those decisions happened months ago. So in some cases, it might be too little too late. But Greg, when you were down in Doran in, in South Georgia, folks were talking about how still the money would be welcome, just, to, you know, an infusion of cash into the rural economy that was hit so hard. Yeah, everyone was saying that. But I think at the back of their mind, they, they also knew that it would not be quick. And that was why the message down there was all about giving the states flexibility, giving Georgia flexibility, use that grant, a block grant. It sounds familiar because it's the exact same argument conservatives make with a lot of federal funding, including with Medicaid and, and healthcare funding. But that's what Brian Kemp and Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black were both pressing for was flexibility, no, no, um, no fewer restrictions, and basically a block grant format so that this, the, the federal government could give Georgia X amount of dollars that they could ex- dispense its own, its own uh, volition. The problem with that, of course, is federal government has all sorts of regulations and restrictions written into the law that it takes a team of lawyers to kind of hash out and untangle and we're in somewhat uncharted territory since this is the longest it's taken for federal disaster relief in modern history. And not only that, but Hurricane Michael really hit pecan farmers, timber farmers. These are these are the types of crops that aren't typically covered after a natural disaster. So the, the Department of Agriculture doesn't have a ton of experience dealing with folks after what they what we've called generational damage to the farms. You know, these trees that were uprooted, it's going to take 10, 15 years for farmers to plant seeds and for the trees to come back and start making money. So, you know, because this is such a new thing, even though Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue mentioned he likes the idea of block grants, you know, it'll take a long time for lawyers to figure out, okay, how can we do this? How can we make sure this program is sound, make sure that there's accountability so that the money is going to the right places? This is a tremendously important and complicated story. Um, for so many residents of, uh, of Georgia, especially in that South, South Georgia area. So thank you so much for following it for the AJC. Thanks for having me. And a programming note, we will be on hiatus for a week as our talented producer goes on a much-needed vacation. Bria, have fun out there. Um, but we'll be back in two weeks for your next podcast. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.